morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, and welcome to Democratic Perspectives. I'm Karen McClellan. Um, today we're going to be talking about some different aspects of critical race theory. Um, before we get to that, we just want to do our, our little fundraising segment as usual. Um, we want to thank the people in the area who supported us over the years, and particularly those who support us on a regular basis. Steve Segner from El Portal Hotel, the Democrats of the Red Rocks, the Yavapai Democratic Party. And please, if you enjoy this show, go to our website, VV. ID.org and donate to help us keep this show on the air. Thank you very much. And then today in the studio, we've got Holly Plug, Heather Isom, and Heather Herman. And we'll let Holly uh, introduce the show about critical race theory part two. Thank you, Karen. Good morning, everybody. Uh, with me are my guests, Heather Herman and Heather Isom. I'm going to let them introduce themselves to you, starting with Heather Herman. Hi, I'm Heather Herman. I'm former school board member as well as a parent of a freshman at Red Rock High School as well as the Booster Club president and site council president. Hi, I'm Heather Isom. I'm a teacher at Sedona Red Rock High School teaching U.S. history, government, and economics. And I also had a daughter who went to high school and graduated in 2020. And Karen, why don't you be one of our guests as well in your capacity <laughs> on the school board and introduce yourself in, in that role. Yeah, yeah. So as well as hosting this, I am currently on the Sedona School Board. I've been on there quite a long time and, and had the chance over all those years to look at you know, some of the issues we're discussing, particularly related to Arizona and our legislature over the last 20 years. So, well. Okay, thank you. Uh, so this is... Uh, our second show on critical race theory and for those of you who may have listened to our first show we talked about critical race theory as an academic philosophy uh, and one that is being taught at the uh, we had three professors from NAU uh, who are involved in teaching critical race theory to one degree or another and uh, there's student base are PhD students and master's students, some of whom are public school administrators or who, or who are involved in education. Uh, now we were, want to talk about local schools and, and whether or not critical race theory is a component of our curriculum at the local level to see practically what impact does this have and how is this being fostered locally. So I'll start with, with Heather Herman. Uh, can you talk to us about your perception of critical race theory and, uh, and is it being taught in our schools in Sedona? Well, having been a former school board member, when all of this came out and became sort of public and much more popular in the media, I was a school board member at the time and I will say at that time, as school board members, we were contacted by maybe a couple of people in the community that were asking about it. Me personally, I was con I was contacted by about five individuals who were asking whether critical race theory was being taught in our school district. 
and only a couple that were very challenging and wanted to know what's being done and are you doing this and I'm not going to send my child there. And I went and met with the superintendent of schools and asked what was going on and talked to the assistant superintendent as well, got the information and you know, was told this isn't something that's being taught in our schools. And those individuals that reached out, I responded to them and one of them was very challenging to me. And then when I found out that they didn't even live in our area and it, they were just kind of trying to pick at something that was a popular media item. But I also think as parent, as a parent of a child in the district, you know, these items of race are not something that is solely a responsibility of our educational system or our teachers. We as parents have a responsibility to educate our children. And I like to, my husband and I like to remind our son of, you know, he's only 15, he's a freshman. We can't expect him to know everything. He still has to ask permission to go to the bathroom at school. Why should we expect him to have all the answers and to know everything that's going on in the community? Of course, teachers like Miss Isom sitting next to me, I respect and appreciate her opinion and what she's doing, but I don't in any way, shape, or form expect her to teach my child everything, especially something as sensitive and serious as critical race theory. So, Miss Isom... You you teach social studies in government. Uh, do you have any perspective on why this, uh, what all the fuss is about, about critical race theory at the high school level? Well, I just don't see that there is the fuss at the high school level in teaching critical race theory. It's very complex. Um, as a master's student, you were introduced to concepts like this where you're looking at social conditions through a lens, if you will. We are teaching in high school certainly social circumstances and outcomes, statistics, but we're not we're not looking at things through a racial oriented lens of who is responsible and who is subject to it. In my classes specifically, topics come up that are discussion based topics of poverty um, we look at statistics, which can point to different racial groups. Um, there's no blame, certainly, involved. We discuss uh, events throughout history that are ra- racially oriented, and that certainly evokes feelings and um, new perspectives, but it's not being taught from a lens of how did race factor in here. So, you know, when I went to school, we, I was in New York State, and we had something called the Regents, which were statewide tests. And when you walked into the classroom, you had a Regents book, a test book, and basically our entire class was how to pass that test. And uh, there was nothing critical in it except for getting a passing grade. And I remember in social studies, we learned a lot about events that happened in uh, history that were uh, dates, battles, declarations, you know, different things, uh, but it had nothing to do with why did, why did this war happen? We just knew who won and the date that they won and dates of important battles. And it wasn't until 
really graduate school that any kind of of uh, unfortunately for me that I really understood the Socratic method of teaching uh, and and the whole idea of thinking critically. So tell me, what is the difference in your mind between critical thinking and critical race theory? I think they're completely different. I don't think that they can be compared. Critical thinking is a, a method of how you learn. It's being able to understand different perspectives, research, discuss, think through ideas and propositions, look for sources or evidence or evaluate these sources of it and evidence and use them to um, pose questions and to consider consequences and different perspectives. Critical race theory um, only does that from from and I don't teach it, so it only does it from a systems point of view of how systems itself or systems themselves have um, created inequality. So we don't, we're not that focused. Certainly, since we have, you know, developed standards, we are more focused on critical thinking skills, which I am very happy about. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if you can remember a date if you don't understand why that date was important in the first place. So our standards give us a lot of freedom to be able to introduce different documents, um, perspectives, where students can learn to think for themselves rather than just be expected to memorize facts and figures from history. And it seems the curriculum here in particular, and I know lots of high school curriculums, sort of focus the discussion of these on an idea of getting students involved in making changes in the world or getting students to become involved in politics with the small p in the political system to get involved in issues. I know here at the high school over the years we've had students who've organized educational events and fundraisers that they learned because of some issue in current events struck their interest at the moment and have taken a point to learn about something happening somewhere in the world in the U.S. or elsewhere and then to look and say this is going on. Is there anything we can do to help? How do we create a world where this problem won't occur in the future. And that's what sort of the critical thinking in this idea is is not to sort of go back and blame somebody for something that happened in the past. It's sort of to understand the past and then say, okay, you you as students are going to go out in the world, high school students, college students, you know, and inspire them to go out and do something to make a better and make a change for the better in some aspect of the world around them. And that's uh, the point of it. I mean, some of you probably remember eight years ago when they talked about critical race theory was an issue in some state races. And it, because people were upset because they wanted, we wanted to ask high school students to think and evaluate sources and ask questions, which of course meant asking questions of their parents, of elected officials, of people around them to sort of understand that, that just because an adult says something, you know, because the commentator on TV says something that's necessarily true, was the idea to have ask questions. Where did you get that idea? You know, what source did you use? Where did it come from? And that's you know, that's sort of the whole idea of, to my mind, of education at high school and college levels is to get people to ask those questions and think, and to say that yes, good things happened in the past that we should celebrate every year, and bad things happened in the past that we hope they never happen again. And it's part of us is to this idea of never forget and let's make sure that we're moving forward, not backwards. And things. So how involved are parents in, in the curriculum? I know if a parent 
wants to know what's being taught in the schools, do they have access? I think so, absolutely. I I believe not only do they have the ability to contact a teacher at any time, but we can go and talk to the superintendent. We just just last week we had parent teacher conferences, so we had the opportunity to walk around the the entire campus and meet individually with each teacher. And I've I've found all of our teachers to be very accepting and welcoming and ready to talk about what they're teaching. I agree. And there's different systems. Some schools are more integrated than others. But I know that people have come in and our superintendent has allowed you know, and provided all of the materials that they've asked for and allowed them to look through those extensively. As a teacher, I use... Google Classroom that I know most parents are familiar with and you and this is how most districts are things are done electronically all materials um, are posted electronically you can look um, for many classes or teachers or however they do it they'll post their lessons and activities and standards every single day parents have access they can look and see what their child is learning every single day if that's used so we are getting more and more transparent. I know a lot of the arguments about this is parents would come in and ask and they would feel like they were um, being blocked. And I don't think it's a function of they don't teachers not wanting to know what parents or want, not wanting parents to know what they're teaching. It's more a function of I'm doing other things at this moment. Um, but there, there are systems that are quite transparent that that we should all be using. Yeah, you've heard that they're talking this year about the Parents' Bill of Rights. Well, they've passed several versions of that, and it's in there, and that, you know, that gives parents the rights to see what's going on. gives a parent right now the right, if they are aware that any subject they don't want their child to be involved in is being taught in the class, they can opt the, parent, the child out of the class for that you know, segment. It's, it doesn't, and people always think of that revolving sex education, but I mean, it's available to parents for any, any object that comes up if there's a specific subject matter. They can opt their students out, and the students will be provided some other alternative, something to do in that period of time. Some will, you know, they'll study a different aspect of U.S. history if there was some, but those are available. All of the actual curriculum, as far as books, is approved by the school board. And, and we've done that on for display. Mm-hmm. We don't, unlike the current, but we don't ask the, school board to approve every single book in the library or every single magazine that a teacher might bring into classroom or every website a teacher might say to their students, um, I, I want you all to, you know, if you've got a computer, let's all turn on CNN, let's listen to the news today on the war in Ukraine. We don't, you know, approve those things, but the outlines of the standards are approved by the state, and some of those standards get extensive discussion. And they're publicly, there's a, there's a public comment period even on that level at the State Board of Education. So parents have options for a lot of information. We all know a lot of this comes up, parents like the teachers are busy. Often you don't know what your child is learning until afterwards, you know, for all kinds of all kinds of reasons. But the same things exist. If a student is, you know, parents can say, well, gee, I found this, so let's not talk that next semester. Let's not have that class. You know, parents have those options of coming and asking for things. Because everything in pretty much in education, when it comes to curriculum, once if if it falls within the standards, it's approved by the local school board. Yeah, and I think that does go back to. And I understand, you know, we're all busy. Everyone's busy. Parents are busy. Teachers are busy. Everyone's busy. 
But I think in this day and age, technology has made it so much easier for us to be involved. And it goes back to the responsibility that parents have. And I just think that rather than laying such ownership on our educational facilities, there is a fully shared ownership that parents need to take responsibility and technology is so easy now that you can check it on your phone you can know exactly what's going on like miss isom said with google classroom it's so simple now to be involved and to pay attention and to know what's happening it's not the way that it used to be that you had to make an appointment and schedule time and go into school and find out and take time off of work it's not like that anymore it's easier. And much of the information is available to the members of the community. I mean, obviously, logging into specific classroom information is often restricted to the parents and the students. But the overall thing, if you can't find a line, you know, the, several of the people this year who've come in and asked questions, I know, are community members. They're not, they do not have students in the school at the moment. They want, they've heard something in the news and they've come in and they, as Ms. Eisenman has said, they have been given the textbooks and the material and they've looked through them. And the few that I'm aware of have at the end said, you, you know, to the, to the you know, superintendent, you are teaching exactly what you should be teaching. You're doing the right things we're teaching the right things it's not what they heard on the news you know when they actually look at what's being what's going on in the classroom it's it's a different thing and and it seems that particular in our area in red rock over the years has made i think a real effort we've talked over the years about giving students credit for community involvement that's has been in existence sometimes not at others but we do you know encourage the kids to get involved you know heather herman here is very involved with the rotary club we encourage students to get involved in local community activities, we've been, you know, encouraged students to get involved in in organizations and activities on the bigger sort of national national way. And felt that's, you know, the students and the teachers at the school have all felt that's part of being in high, particularly high school. Part of being in high school is getting involved and learning what's going on in the world and getting involved and taking part. Yeah. Well, so do you think we're unique here, and it's all happening elsewhere in the state? No. <laughs> so what, what is all the fuss about? It it comes from you know from things the news media said, which may not be correct. It comes from misunderstanding of words and terms. You know that you know, schools for a long time in Arizona a lot of have talked about issues of equity. We know that in Arizona, I've forgotten the exact things. I think it's twenty some percent of the students live in poverty. We have a you know we have issues on on the the native reservations. A lot of students don't graduate from high school. We have real issues, a lot of which have to do with poverty. They have to do with unemployment. They have to do with substance abuse. All kinds of issues that that affect that affect the schools. And so some of this comes you know from understanding when people talk about trying to to correct those issues. The word equity is one in schools, and that they have talked about that equity is not. You know, affirmative action, which has gotten required a negative connotation recently, but equity is the idea that in you have students coming into your school with different needs, and that everybody should get not just the same books access, but whatever help they need, so they can all learn the material, they can all graduate, they can all be ready for a job or for school, and some of that within schools is looking at how you spend your money. Some of it is looking at you know how are you encouraging your teachers. To be more aware of these issues, you know, are you on, on the bottom line in some districts in the Phoenix area and up in the reservations? Are you out there encouraging members of your community to become teachers so that your teachers rep- reflect the community? I know a couple of the reservations have very active programs on growing your own teachers. 
they make every effort to support to make sure that they have students from their communities who come back after college and want to be teachers. So it's all of these aspects, and they sort of become conflated as the idea that's gone through. I don't know how many decades of American ideas that if I that we have a zero sum game. If I help you because you're poor, or I help you because you're a member of, of a specific race, somehow there's less for me. You know that there's a zero sum. We, you know, the, I can't. You know, and that's, and that's not really true when it comes to education. You know, assisting one one student doesn't mean that some other student doesn't get what they need. The idea was to make sure everybody gets what they need. Well, that's policy, though. That's not. Yeah, but that's, that's not a curriculum issue. Right? Yeah, it's not really. It's policy, but those are the things that that people talk about, and then sometimes it gets misinterpreted. And you add in, you know, things in the national media. You add in people who write best-selling books on all aspects of this, who sometimes don't represent anybody but themselves, but they're good writers. So their book ends up on the New York Times bestseller list, and someone says, "Oh, that must be what everybody's teaching." No, that's one one professor who wrote a book about what he thinks we should be teaching, which may or may not have any relation to what actually is being taught. And some of the just the fact of. You know, of, it's easy, and we've talked about before, and it's, sort of, it's easy to get misinformation in the news today. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for adults to figure out what mis- what's real and what's not, let alone asking high school students to try to disentangle the Internet. Well, let's talk about equity for a minute, because this, the, a lot of our viewers may not, our viewers, our listeners <laughs> may not understand uh, the, the uh, makeup of our student body. So what, is, what are the demographics within our community? We have a growing population of English language and Hispanic speakers. We see that, that we have higher percentages in the lower grades, which means that as they're coming up to the higher grades that will, and I, I can't speak to specific numbers, but I know that there is a, a need for um, the English language instruction and that there's a struggle there. Can you speak more to that point? Well, in Arizona, we are the last remaining state who has held on to English-only instruction, which research shows is not effective in in helping these English language learners uh, graduate through high school have the same outcomes on any of their testing. So when we're talking about critical race theory and how systems are put in place that are inherently unequal, we actually have the systems in Arizona that are creating inequalities in our education system because we are still using um, theory or methodology that is proven to be ineffective. And we're the only state that's doing it now. And that's statutory? Yes. Has there been any discussion about changing that, or is there complete resistance? There to has that? been in the last couple of years. They put it open as an initiative to cancel it out. I think it was originally made in 2000, but it essentially died in the process the it last was, year it was or so. It was an initiative, I think, initially quite a long time ago, and it was aimed. It wasn't named specifically a school. Schools sort of were a, a fallout from the, the low. There was the idea. Some of the people put out with the idea that the police department, the, the government should be speaking English, you know, not providing bilingual or trilingual or however many lingual uh, in, information for on some of that. And schools, I think, sort of 
you know, got caught up in that. I don't. It was not the initial intent of the law just to affect how English was taught to students who don't speak English. It was a general idea that everybody needs to speak English, and we don't need to provide inf- you know, governmental information in other languages. It was you know, some of the, the push behind that initially. And we don't have textbooks and materials in other languages. Those are yeah. prohibited by law. But one of the principles that I look at constantly is we are to provide a fair education with the same programs for everybody. If I can't teach economics to somebody, anybody can learn economics. They can learn it in different languages. It's, you know, but if they have to learn English before they can learn economics, then how is that providing them the same framework of education? Or they come down to even lower math and science. Or, yeah. Well, so what happens if a student doesn't speak English at home and they come to school and their, their English is rudimentary? Do they leave your classroom and get, an Eng- get taught English in another classroom or do they... I haven't, had, I haven't had I haven't had students pulled out for English instruction, but we modify languages or modify lessons. We focus more on vocabulary. There are, I mean, we are all English language certified, so there's methods and practices that you can do that help um, these students along. But they're not as effective um, if they don't have materials that that they understand. So are the parents given the option of a uh, a translated book that they can bring? Not in this state. That is prohibited by law. So now, again, with the new technological changes, they have their computers. Every student in the school now has a laptop, which makes it really great for them because they can take the initiative. If we're providing documents, they can be translated through Google. They have to do that themselves we can't provide those things, yeah. but it, it, it makes it easier for them. And in that program, in, in the younger grades, in elementary school, what it's meant initially was those students spent four hours a day learning English. Yeah, whether your English is te- on a basis of a test, if you don't, if you aren't reaching a certain level on the test, you spend four hours a day learning English. Well, well school, how many hours a day? School is, is only school? about six hours a day. Yeah. So, in in some areas, one of the aspects of that has been to hurt the cohesiveness of your student body because the students learning English are spending four hours a day by themselves. They're not interacting with their other students. And when you talk about young children, speaking to other students is a wonderful way to learn English. They may not be learning grammar, but they're learning English. And that interaction of being in the same classroom and talking to each other about their dogs or whatever it might be are the kinds of things that, that kids communicate and kids, kids, young kids pick up languages quickly through that kind of interaction. It makes, it's a big boost to the academic side of learning another language. And that's has been in some places in Arizona that became a real issue because it does create a, a sort of a segregation in your student body between the English, English language learners, English language speakers and English language learners, which is sort of, the opposite of what we're all trying to do in, in schools. And besides the English language in Sedona, Sedona, our students, majority of our students are living in poverty. It's not the experience of the people who've retired and moved to Sedona. It's a completely a, a, a different issue. These are the children of our workforce. The children of our workforce. Yeah, the children exactly. of our workforce. Of, and it's not just the children of our workforce, those who are Hispanic English language learners. It's just a lot of other people who moved to Sedona for the same reasons we did, 
But since they didn't have higher paying jobs or they didn't have a retirement income, they want to live in Sedona. So the parents are working two or three, maybe smaller, less jobs so they can afford to stay here regardless of what language they speak at home. Lots of people want to live here. And so we're not limited to only accepting students of families who live in Sedona in our system. Uh, families who live in Cottonwood can send their kids yeah. to Sedona schools. Absolutely. It's, it's an open enrollment policy. So we've got students who come. We actually have some that come from Prescott because their parents work here and they go to our schools. So we have children who come across all the way across the, the Verde Valley. And then it's also the fact that um, we have a homeless population as well that I, I don't think a lot of people realize We've all seen how much Sedona has changed, and we know that people are living out in these areas, out in the out in the forest. But we have currently about 38 McKinney Bento, the homeless population in our in our school district alone, and just in Cottonwood next door, their homeless homeless population is approaching 120 just for their Mingus High School. And that's just mm-hmm. the ones that we know about yeah. that are telling us. So as Karen mentioned, yeah. we've got a poverty problem here. And there's a misconception when people think of Sedona, they think of this high dollar, beautiful homes on the on the hills. But they don't think about the working force and what that equates to in our in our school yeah. system. Because we have, I've looked at in the past, I was went to a meeting in the Humboldt School District, which is Prescott Valley, some years ago to, to give an award to a school board member and their English language learning program that was the subject of a, a report and realized that Humboldt, which has 5,000 students at that time, and at that point we had less than 1,000, has about half the English language learners we do. You know, so it's the this you know, these issues of some of these things with poverty, English language learners. They're not standard across the state or the area. They vary, which makes which makes it more difficult sometimes to handle these these issues. I know in the homeless population, the ones that get counted are those who are truly homeless. Those are the students living in an RV. That doesn't count the people you know who are living you know in their grandmother's garage. You know some of these multi-family or multi-generational families here because they're not technically homeless, but that's not an ideal. You know, they're not living in ideal situations. They're not living in places where we would all like where the students have you know the, a quiet place to do their homework and everybody you know and you don't have multiple ages sleeping in one bedroom because they're trying to afford to stay in the area. And that's you know an issue which we don't you don't see. But the, that goes back to the fact that the majority of our students are living in poverty to some degree. And we all know that has an immediate effect on what is, all what, kinds of things. What is the percentage of, of a free school lunch? Oh, gee, you would ask me that. <laughs> I, I believe the last, time I, the last time I was told uh, by the yeah. principal was 70% at West yeah. Sedona. Yeah. We are what they call a Title I school district, which means you reach a certain point in that it also you know, for, you know, means that you, you – that you have some a few other options on how you can use some of that federal money for lunch. But it is a huge number of students, and we have students here, the backpack programs that, uh, that other organizations have worked at, where students, that's their best meal of the day is at school for lunch. And that backpack that they may give them on Friday to take home is, you know, breakfast for the weekend. So we, we don't think about that issue, and that makes such a difference. You know, on in all kinds of things, it makes it be adding all you know, a difference for students that are hungry, students that are tired, students that had commuted a longer distance because they come here because their parents are working here. All those issues 
Oh, they to, factor to, in. Together they... factor in on how well a student does on any, on any given day. And when we measure our success, well, and we probably now that COVID is sort of disappearing into the, in, in the view of the, the state, when we measure our success on a couple of tests, it becomes very hard to to you know to have a school represent what they're really doing when you talk about you know, one day a test and that that makes you as an A school or a C school when you have all these other factors influencing how well your students do want to give any given test any given day. So what is our grade? They haven't issued new ones yeah. in the last two years due to COVID on uh, the things and, and so it's it's really hard. To, it's hard to tell. They've you know, and was they, our last published grade. The last published grade, I think, was like it was like a B for the district and a B for the high school and like a C for West Sedona School. But the West Sedona School, when you that's again because that's where the majority of the English language learners are in lower grades. For some over the years, our Hispanic population is a little more stable. It's not as transient. So those students that come in in the elementary grades may well still be here later on. And by that point, they've learned English right. after those first few. But those first few grades make a big difference. If your third and fourth graders are spending all their time concentrating and learning English to pass an English test, they're not going to pass the math test. As, you know, they're going to be struggling because possibly because they're still struggling with those concepts. And those and the the meaning of the words you talked about economics, right? With any of them, but though. you have to understand the, the the vocabulary of the subject matter. Even if you can understand the concepts, it's hard if you don't understand the vocabulary of the subject matter. And that applies again in English and in math and in science and in things like economics, where there are sp- a specific vocabulary. You gotta you gotta learn what those words mean, and they're hard for all of us because they're not the words you necessarily use in your everyday language. Yeah. So well, let's talk in, in um, about the legislature and about the bills that are before the legislature and the impact it will have on the classroom. So the if there are cameras in the classroom uh, videoing everything that's going on in the classroom, how are teachers going to react to that? We actually do have cameras in our classrooms. We haven't used them for the purpose of the public watching what we're doing on a daily basis we use it as a tool for kids who have who've not been able to go to school because of covid to have the same lessons um so i'm not sure how it would impact if it was used in that way i believe that there should be transparency that parents should be able to see um and know what's being taught but there are privacy issues there not specifically for the teacher, but there are certainly for the students. Um, but it's it's worked for our purposes, and it's helped us to serve the student population that otherwise would not be served. Um, but there's other things that we talked about, the Google Classroom, other platforms that parents can see what you're doing. They can have access to the materials. So what of, of the bills that have been... That have been uh, some of which have passed, some of which are still in the process, and they've been submitted, uh, do you think are the most egregious or would have the most chilling impact? Well, first of all, what they, they don't ever use the term critical race theory in the legislation, and they're using restrictions, I suppose, that I wouldn't even consider to be CRT, not teaching that there's one oppressive race to another, not 
teaching shame, things. Well, those are, of course, common sense, but that's not technically part of what CRT is. So when this term critical race theory is being included in directives of this is legislation, this is restricted, it's, first of all, not clear what is and is not restricted. And there has been... um, documents put out by the state that clarifies what that is you know things you can talk about versus things that you can't talk about but because it's such a complex issue um as far as teaching at that master's degree level my concern is that we as teachers will not allow or have those difficult discussions for fear that they may be um, violating a law somehow and and what's the what are the uh, will you lose your license? I mean, what are the The, the legislation penalties? says that there's, a, I believe, a $500 fine and or the loss of a license. And yeah. who, and the punitive who parts it? keep changing, but there is sometimes it's the district could be sued. Sometimes it's specific things on the teachers, the legislation, various, but all of it is meant to be some sort of a punitive Effect whether the you know on the uh, a stifling effect on the teachers whether they themselves would be subject personally to a a consequence or it would be the district but it would mean the teachers would would think three or four times about what they say if they're discussing current events right but if if licensor if you're talking about losing your license that's a very personal yeah that's a real individual consequence for that. So I would anticipate that if people aren't researching, teachers specifically aren't researching the parameters of what this law says, um, that they may just decide that those discussions aren't worth having. But they are. (laughs) They are still worth having. Analogous in some years to places in the past, teaching evolution. There are school districts where because of community pressure, teachers sort of slide over that section of biology. They talk about the division of animals into families and they talk about birds and they talk about trees they talk about cell division but they don't actually discuss the theory of evolution you know it, it may be in the textbook but they don't really talk about it and that's you know, sort of an effect so the students are losing students are losing valuable information whether or not they're going to agree with it which is you know or going to believe you know it's just a chance to be exposed well, a lot of, of, of legislation that's being proposed is very difficult to actually uh, implement. So who is, the, um, who is it that would, would be reviewing, can any person review a tape, decide that they didn't like what was being taught, that it violated the law, and bring an action, and where would that action be brought? Did I think it go to court. I think the state's attorney general can bring the action based on reporting by community members. Is the way I understand how that process would work. And it'd be up to the attorney general's office to determine the validity. You know, there's a number of of things in the state right now that are that sort of thing. Open meeting law violations mm-hmm. for for city council, school boards. Anyone can make a complaint to the attorney general's right. office. We have a 1487. And, and well, that's a little bit different. But the attorney general then looks oh, right. and does some investigating and decide: Is there any grounds? Is this just somebody who had was angry? Is this a misunderstanding? And the attorney general doesn't actually go forward with a formal investigation of every complaint made to them. Right. But it you, you, it would be possible that they could. Do you, is this uh, were all these laws also relevant to charter schools, 
or are they just for public schools? The ones that have to do with curriculum would be because the charter schools follow the same standards. So generally the things on policy, there are occasional things that charter schools are specifically treated differently on. But I think most of these laws you've talked about, about teaching controversial subjects, uh, about critical race theory, about something, they seem to apply to any any public school, which is charter any schools. public funding? That's public funded mm-hmm. schools used, that's teaching with our state standards because some of these changes might well be, would, would some of them would almost have to be implemented in a future version of our state standards as a possibility yeah. that they might remove segments on teaching certain things. So, but so they would apply to all the, they don't apply at all to private schools. Right. That private schools still have the authority to teach anything, nothing, Yep. Whatever, they, whatever choose, they want, whatever mm-hmm. they want. And so, so do you think that all this focus and emphasis is uh, is just political with a capital P, <laughs> or is it, or is it something else? I think a lot of it is. I think a lot of it is politics for sure. I, I think we're in a really strange time. I don't know what people are thinking sometimes i i think that they forget what it was like to be a student or to have gone to school or to have their kids go to school but i just look at it and i think the more muddy and cumbersome and difficult this is becoming the more teachers are leaving in a mass exodus and i think it just it doesn't do anything for our educational system and i just i think it's I think it's terrible all the way around, and if people would just take the time to attend a meeting, pay attention, read a little bit more, do a little more research, all the things that we're asking our students to do, if if grown-ups would do that, maybe we would have a little bit more understanding and compassion and education. And so as look at if the result of this is that you don't have enough teachers, so local schools close for you know, teachers' reasons, finding you know, some of the issues about finances, if those sort of things, as people really looked and said, what would you really do if there was no local school system? If you were in the Verde Valley and the public schools closed, what would replace them? What would there be? Would you, do you want what might occur? And so to look at that is, is the way of the future. Is it really, do we really want to have private schools only where parents have to, they get what they pay for? You know, and you're going to have different education systems for a lot of different people. And so people need to look at what the end result of this. Some of this, I think, comes down to an idea that anything that the government runs is not the best thing. So you have the private private industry does things better. So it comes to sort of a final, you know, an issue with that. We need to think about what would you do if your public school closed, whether you're a parent or not right now. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, Ms. Isom, you... You left the, the Sedona School District and then you came back. I mean, how is, what was your experience? In Sedona or in a different school? In, in a different school. I mean, was it, was the, the, was there a difference in the, in the way the education system worked there? There were differences, but they were also based on the size of the school and the population of the school and things like that. I came back to Sedona because the kids in the school seem very oriented towards critical thought and discussion and they're very interested in what's going on in the world out there and i can conduct classes the way i like to based on these discussions and interests that i don't always that i didn't always see in in a different district so 
I love being in this environment. That's a wonderful thing to hear about Sedona schools it for anybody, is. anyone who do that. And that's true, I think, of a lot of schools. Teach, that's because teachers are wonderful people. <laughs> people who become teachers, they really are doing this in their school as much as they can every single day. I think we're starting to run out, run out of time here. So I want to thank everybody for coming. And we'll, some of these issues we'll be continuing to talk about as we talk about legislative issues. Some of these same issues we know are going to be the subject of this fall's elections. Certainly at, the, certainly at the level of governor, you know, what the school systems in Arizona should look like, what we should be doing, how we should fund them. All of these things are going to be con- continuing issues. They are every two years, but they'll be, I think, even more this year. So I want to thank everybody for coming, and uh, please tune in next week. We have Diane Post talking about private prisons in Arizona, and then the following week we'll have Dean Baker, who's a nationally known economist, been on several times, has talked about issues of income inequality and wealth in the United States. Brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.